I'm Martin Tyler, and you're listening to Harry Simeon. Back to the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast part of the 90 Min Football Network. As ever, I'm your host, Harry Simu, and on this edition of the show, we're going to be looking back at the Arsenal All or Nothing episodes four to six. Really, really enjoyed four to six, much more than I enjoyed one to three. And I wanted to bring you guys an episode ahead of the release of the final three, looking back on those. And there's lots and lots of bits and pieces from four, five and six to discuss, which is why I was really, really keen to do this video, especially ahead of the release of the next one. So here we are uh, live on the Chronicles of Aguna YouTube channel. But if you are listening to us on audio format, if you are listening to us uh, via the podcast, please do uh, leave us a review. Please do um, subscribe on whichever platform it is that you are listening from or watching from. Okay. Um, First of all, I want to say a big thank you for all the birthday wishes yesterday. It's why I didn't do a podcast. I tried to take a day off, not a, not a day off, but I tried to have a less intense day and it just never worked out like that. Never does. Uh, but I decided that I was definitely going to take a day off from the things that I could take a day off from, which my own podcast is certainly one of those things. Uh, thank you all so much for your well wishes. Really, really appreciate it. 32 years old, getting on a bit, and I? Put it this way, if I were a Premier League footballer, I don't think anybody would give me more than a one-year contract now, which is a little bit worrying, a little bit concerning. <laughs> um, yeah, new haircut as well. Yeah, cut the hair off. It was really long. It went all the way back, whatever. I just got fed up of it, to be honest with you. Um, I'm not about the high maintenance. I'm not about getting up in the morning and having to spend... 15, 20 minutes trying to sort out my hair. And that's the point it got to. So I decided to get rid of most of it. And here I am. Um, here I am looking more and more like Alexander Mitrovic every day. People keep telling me. <laughs> Big hello to everybody in the live chat. Hope you're all well. Hope you're all good. I can see lots of the usual suspects in the chat. Uh, good to see you guys. Uh, big thank you to Daniel for your very kind super chat donation. He says, uh, happy birthday. Love your channel. Daniel, thank you so, so much, mate. Uh, all the best to you as well. Okay, let's get into it then. Let's get into episodes four, five and six of the Arsenal All or Nothing documentary. Now, I've got some notes in front of me today. After the first three episodes, I didn't really make notes. Like I kind of sat down to watch it with the intention of doing so, so that I could then bring you guys a real breakdown a, a real um sort of deep dive into episodes one to three and when i watched it i just I, I didn't feel like there was that much worth making notes about if i'm being completely honest and we did our review and we talked about it and i shared with you guys my thoughts etc etc but i didn't think it was anywhere near i didn't think the first three episodes were anywhere near as revealing as the second three I don't think they were anywhere near as enjoyable as the second three. And I think the second three really did contribute to the cracking atmosphere that we saw at Emirates Stadium on Saturday because, OK, there's a feel-good factor around the team anyway. You know, some really good signings in the summer. Most people, once the dust had settled, realised that last season was progress, that we did move in the right direction. And so people naturally were feeling better about things anyway. But I think episodes four to six were perfect in terms of really setting the mood ahead of our first home game, really getting people who maybe were on the fence 
about the process to buy into it and at least understand and respect it, even if there are elements of it that you don't completely agree with. But it starts off, um, you know, right at the beginning of episode four with a scene of Mikel Arteta in the dressing room labelling the players as effing soft. And that's good to see. Like, that is good to see because for years and years and years, particularly under Arsene Wenger, we would say that as fans. We would say this team's soft, there's no backbone, they've got a soft underbelly. That was the common phrase that was banded about in the media about Arsenal teams of the past. And at times, we wondered if Arsene Wenger, if the people running the club actually realised that, if they could actually see what we were seeing. And I think actually, since Mikel Arteta's taken over, you could argue that we're a lot better in that sense. We're a lot less effing soft than we were in years gone by. And that comes down to a number of things. So, A, the manager and the message he puts across, but it's also down to the type of player you have as well. Do you have players who can physically mix it with some of the most physical in the league? Do you have players that won't allow themselves to be bullied because, A, they're not going to have it because of personal pride, but also, B, because they're physical enough to stand up for themselves in what is undoubtedly the most, or one of the most physical leagues in the world? So it was good to see that even if it was Mikel Arteta going off on a rant, and normally that means that there's been something bad before that, i.e. a poor result, the fact that he sort of went in like that, it gave me confidence that he does see these things, that he felt the same way about this Arsenal side when he took it over. And so whenever that side of things rears its ugly head again, he's ready to to make that point. He's ready to really hammer it home and really sort of make sure that it doesn't happen. He was talking about uh, Bamiyang as well, right at the start of episode four. Now this is the episodes. These are the episodes in which we start to get a little bit more of an understanding of the Bamiyang story from the club side. And um, Mikel Arteta, just a few quotes and points that he made that I thought were really, uh, or really jumped out to me were, we agreed and set some objectives together when, of course, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang agreed to extend his stay at Arsenal. Mikel said, I made some compromises on what I was happy to do, and I demanded the same from him. If somebody doesn't do or breaks any of the the non-negotiables, we're at a difficult point. That's a difficult point, is what he said. So, read between the lines. He and Aubameyang agreed some objectives together. Mikel Arteta didn't get it all his own way, made some compromises in order to try and keep Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, who had shown himself to be a really important part of the team at the point at which he extended his contract. Remember, he almost, well, he pretty much did single-handedly lead us to that FA Cup victory. And then the the new contract came that summer. Um, But Mikel Arteta's right to say, if I'm going to make compromises, I demand the same. I demand him to make compromises. I demand him to give some as well. It's not all just take, take, take. You know, you give a little, you take a little. That's how it works. Um, But the fact that Mikel Arteta then went on to say, look, if somebody doesn't do that, doesn't do what they say, doesn't do what we agreed and breaks my sort of rules, he calls them non-negotiables, then it does put you in a difficult point. And listen, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, silence off the back of all of this for me is the most telling thing 
if he was really wronged, if he really didn't know why it was that Mikel Arteta was so unhappy with him, um, then he would have come out and said something. He's one of the most active footballers you'll find on social media. He's got a team working uh, all across that side of things. He's he's very sort of modern in the way he goes about his business. There's no reason why if Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang had been really wronged, he could he wouldn't have come out and said something. And he hasn't. And that suggests to me that he knows that he took the piss. He knows that he crossed the line. He knows that he overstepped the mark and he knows that he exceeded um, the, the sort of limits and boundaries set by Mikel Arteta. Um, Rob Holding was filmed speaking about the situation in uh, in the canteen and he said that um, Aubameyang was late. Now, Aubameyang says or did say that he returned back from visiting his mum in time, but obviously he arrived in the morning when he was told that he needed to be back that night. I don't believe that coming back in the morning instead of coming back the night before, but still making it to training on time is enough for Mikel Arteta to go off the hinge the way he did and and basically completely sour his relationship with Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang to the point where there was no return. I don't believe it was that simple. And Rob Holding actually said something. He said, the boss had balls to do what he did, to leave a player of a Bamiang stature, of a Bamiang's importance, out of the side. That took balls. And although you don't want to cut your nose off to spite your face, although you don't want to weaken your team just to make a point, I'm not suggesting that that's what Mikel Arteta's done here, by the way, but the fact that he was so strong in that clearly sent a message. And I think we've seen an improvement in the culture within the club ever since. Sometimes somebody needs to be made an example of it's not picking on someone it's not bullying because ultimately for that person to be made an example of they have to have done something wrong in the first place and Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang did numerous things wrong during the latter stages of his Arsenal career and got away with one got away with two got away with three but he wasn't going to get away with it again and Mikel Arteta as Rob Holding said showed balls to do what he did there was a scene as well where Aubameyang was driving out of the London Colney training facility and he pulled over and he was speaking to someone in French. And I don't know who it was, perhaps a member of staff. Not sure exactly, but the guy was like, where have you been sort of thing? And, and Aubameyang, I don't know, I, I just thought he came across as a bit of a smug prick there. Like, I just thought he'd come across as a little bit like, you know, like, well, I don't know what I've done wrong sort of thing. I'll be back soon. Like, it, it, he seemed to come across to me as though he didn't care um, about the situation, as though he wasn't fussed uh, with the fact that he'd been banished and as if he kind of thought that it was only going to be a matter of time before Mikel Arteta would come crawling back and essentially backtrack on his stance over the whole thing. And I just thought he came across as a little bit of an idiot there. I didn't like that. I really didn't like that. Um. I really like the fact that in this whole situation, in this whole um, sort of saga, if you want to call it that, we did kind of, we we did find and we did, we did sort of learn and, and or maybe not learn. We, we had it confirmed that Mikel Arteta will hold everybody to the same standards, that Mikel Arteta doesn't care who you are, 
what your status is within the team, how important you might be to the success of his team. And ultimately, as a manager, the, the, the team's success is your success. Without the team's success, you don't taste success. Without, um, you know, without getting results, people will always will always put you under scrutiny. Without getting results, people will always question what you do. And Mikel Arteta is well aware of that. He hasn't been a manager for an awful long time, but he's been in the game of football. He's worked for a long period of time as the number two to arguably one of the greatest managers in history. So he knows all about the world of football. Yeah, he's still learning in terms of management. But for me, he, you know, he's, um, for me, he, 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 he's much more experienced in the world of football than he is in the world of management. And a lot of those things are similar, right? It doesn't mean that because you haven't been a manager, you don't know anything and you're, you're starting off as from zero. No, having played the game to a very high level for a long period of time, you know the ins and outs of football. And he will know that in banishing Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, he was potentially damaging his team's chances of achieving their objectives. He knows that it made his team weaker uh, because of the lack of a, another good striker within the group that could contribute the same amount of goals. He knew all of that. And even still, he took that decision, which says to me that he believes in his method, in his process, that if he sticks to his guns, if he does what he believes are the right things, then, um, you know, then he will get there eventually. And I kind of admire that. I kind of respect that, that he wasn't kind of, he didn't wilt to the pressure of Aubameyang and what losing Aubameyang could mean. Instead, he stuck to his guns. Instead, he followed it through. And in the end, I think he's got the right result out of it. Um, Pre-Southampton, there was a, a, an interesting speech given by Mikel Arteta where he talked about whether it's whether he asked the players what's more important the journey or the destination and a lot of people said the journey some said the destination you could see that they wanted to say the destination I, I remember watching it at the time and thinking well obviously the destination's important the journey's important too but I remember watching that and thinking well I can't really decide here on what it is that Mikel Arteta is expecting me would say but he said it was the company he said it was the company in which you embark on the with which you embark on the journey and the company with which you reach that destination really trying to nail home that kind of um that team ethic and and I think it was um I think it was a really powerful message that he put across just on the Abamyang thing um a couple of other points you know Mikel Arteta revealed that he had a a sort of notebook of all the things that Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang had done and ultimately got away with in the past. Um, you know, he said he's been late apart from uh, all the other issues many times, which again reiterates the fact that this has happened on numerous occasions. And Mikel Arteta, you know, made the comment that the club has got tradition. And he also made the point that when you get paid that much money, you've got to... You've got to respect that. And, and I think he's absolutely spot on. Um, you know, Mikel Arteta made his uh, stance clear. Edu admitted that it wasn't easy to back Mikel Arteta's decision um, at the time. He made it clear that, 
you know, the, the entire club weren't all singing from the same hymn sheet at the beginning, but in the end, they'd come around to back the manager. And ultimately, that's what you have to do, I think, as a football club. This wasn't Aubameyang being totally wronged, Mikel Arteta on a power trip and Mikel Arteta, um, you know, just trying to get his way in every way, shape or form and and, and Aubameyang being a scapegoat of that. Aubameyang was not performing to the standards required, but also clearly wasn't committed enough. And I don't want Arsenal's captain to be someone who isn't committed. I don't want Arsenal's captain to be someone whose attitude we question on a weekly basis. I'm glad that he's gone and I'm glad that Arsenal, um, you know, I'm glad that Arsenal took the action that they did. Uh, Ray Anderson makes the point. I I said notebook. Uh, He's a dossier, Harry. Uh, notebook sounds like a little thing. Dossier seems like it's a lot more. You're absolutely right, mate. And I did actually write down uh, a quote that was in the show where they referred to it as a catalogue of misdemeanors. And that was raised when they were talking to Aubameyang's people, his lawyers, and seeking advice from the club representatives as well to find out where they stood on this situation. Big shout out to Ibi um, as well, uh, who is joining us in the live chat. Thank you so much for your uh, kind donation, my friend. Really, really appreciate it. He quotes uh, Mikel Arteta saying, when you lose a duel, are you upset? He says, I think they're doing a lot to show Arteta in a great light. And it is working. Honestly, loved the passion. Yeah, me too. Me too. Um, Yeah, um, the Aubameyang thing really dominated episode four, I thought. Um, that was kind of the main sort of focus of that particular episode. You know, Edu, as I said, made the point that he, he wasn't completely behind the decision at first, but said that, you know, we had to act. And also, as I keep saying, there's been no retaliation from Aubameyang's people at any point. I thought, though, Arsenal were classy still in the way they dealt with this because they made it clear that Aubameyang was the one in the wrong. They made it clear that they had to do what they did. They made it clear that they weren't going to be pushed around. And they made it clear that actually the only person to blame for Aubameyang's maybe premature exit, if you want to call that, is the Gabonese striker himself. But they also didn't go too far in terms of throwing mud at him. They didn't go too far in terms of, you know, trying to paint this really negative picture of Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang out of, a, I guess, a respect for maybe the man, maybe for what he did for Arsenal Football Club prior. You know, he did win Nikola Arteta his first trophy with the club. And I think there was there was this really kind of difficult sort of conundrum that Arteta and the club were faced with, whereas where they were in this difficult place of, you know, we don't want to kick this guy to the curb. We don't want to disgrace him. We don't want to lose him, but he's kind of given us no choice. And if we don't deal with this, then it goes back on everything we've been saying since we arrived with regards to culture, with regards to non-negotiables. And what kind of message does that send, not just to the rest of the senior players, but to those young players that Arsenal are building around? So, yeah, um, those were my uh, big takeaways from episode four. Uh, Moving on to episode five, where they really kind of focused on the January window quite a bit. It was clear that the January window was largely dominated by the Aubameyang issue. Um, You know, Edu, Richard Garlick, uh, Vinay Venkatesham were all considering and wanting, I guess, at the time to reintegrate Aubameyang back into the squad from fear of what 
him being cast aside would mean in terms of trying to move him on, etc., etc. Um, you know, they probably thought that it was the right way to go, that if they did reintegrate him, it'd be easier to move him on. And Mikel Arteta was having none of it. I said just then that the January window felt like it was dominated by the Aubameyang issue. There is a part of me that thinks that the club wanted it to come across like that because of the fact that they didn't bring anybody of significance in. And a lot of fans at the back end of last season looked back at that window and said, well, that's the reason ultimately why we missed out on top four. I'm still very much of the opinion that we were right not to panic by, that we were right not to be knee-jerk and that we were right to stick to the plan. But I can understand why people have the opposite opinion of that. And so I think this was a little bit of the club kind of trying to make out that because of Aubameyang, they they had no choice but to focus all of their time and effort in dealing with that situation. Um, Mikel Arteta was speaking a little bit about Aubameyang uh, again in episode five. And again, you know, you I'm sure you've all watched it, but the bit that really... The bit that really kind of gripped me and the bit that I noted down when I was watching it was when Mikel Arteta said, you can't measure trust. That's why you need rules because they bring discipline and they bring clarity. And I thought that was a, a really sort of powerful statement from Mikel Arteta. You know, you, you don't know how much you could, how do you measure how much you can trust someone? And so if they break your rules, and if they don't adhere to what is what is being set in terms of standards, then, you know, you have every right to think that they can't be trusted. And Mikel Arteta clearly got to that point, didn't he? Um, he clearly got to that point with, with Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. A couple of other bits uh, from that episode. Uh, it's just, I know I keep going back to the Aubameyang thing, but it keeps kind of coming up, doesn't it, uh, throughout those episodes. But obviously Tim Lewis as well got involved in that a little bit. Um Lots and lots of meetings between Edu and Richard Garlick in particular. Vinay Venkateshem seemed to be quite present as well. Um, and, and Edu made a, a really powerful statement as well during that kind of scene where they were talking about the Aubameyang situation. He said, look, at the moment, everybody's losing. Arsenal have got a player that they're paying a shit ton of money for who isn't giving anything to the team. Mikel Arteta doesn't want to reintegrate him because of the negative impact that could have and the way it makes him and the club look if they're, if they're to allow what happened to slide. The player wants to be playing football. You know, he's not getting any younger. So Edu was right in that everybody's losing. And so a solution needed to be found. And actually, Arsenal deserve a lot of credit for, in the end, managing to find a solution that meant that they weren't going to be liable for Aubameyang's wages the following season. And that would clear the deck so that they could then go out and do what they needed to do this summer. That was so, so important. And in the end, they got their way because they pushed, they pushed and they pushed. Also, we saw a, a really interesting side to Edu when, um, when those negotiations were going back and forward between Arsenal and uh, and Barcelona and and obviously on the day that the transfer window was due to shut. Remember, Pierre Emerick Aubameyang arrived in Barcelona, didn't he? Um, he dressed it up as though he was he was going to see his dad, but he knew that that move was on the cards, and he knew that if he were there, he stood a greater chance of that deal being completed in time for him to make that move. And there was that scene, wasn't there, where a, a member of staff walked into the office and said to Edu, "He's just arrived. 
in Barcelona. And Eddie was like, what? Let me see. And he sees it. And then it obviously speaks to someone from Barcelona or someone from Aubameyang's team. I'm not entirely sure who it was. And, and uh, Edu says, you know, he's in, um, he's in Barcelona and they go, oh, nothing to do with us. He's here for personal reasons. And Eddie goes, yeah, you know, this, this is not Disneyland. I, I really like that. He was like sort of something along the lines of, do you think I live in Disneyland? I love the way that Edu was really forthright in that and powerful in that. And yeah, he comes across as this nice, friendly guy who smiles and laughs and jokes with people. But he is ruthless. You have to be ruthless to do a job like the one he does. And I think he's shown that side to him um, a lot over the last sort of 18 months. Um, another comment from Edu was uh, around the managerial situation. Um, you know, he said that as a manager, if you open up... That, sorry, was that Edu that said that? Or it might have been Mikel Arteta um, that said that. But there was a comment from one of them, I beg your pardon, my notes have let me down here, um, where they said, as a manager, if you open up, you have to accept you're going to get hurt. So if you kind of let people in, if you kind of show that human side, if you do let your guard down in order to try and build those relationships and make them stronger, there is a chance that you do um, that you do get hurt. They uh, focused on the Anfield draw Um in the uh, Carabao Cup, obviously the first leg of the semi-final, it was a nil-nil draw. Um, there was spirit on show, fight, desire. Um, we were down to 10 men that night after Granit Xhaka got himself sent off. But I was really proud of Arsenal on the night for getting over the line and uh, for getting that result and keeping us in the tie going into the second leg. But I was even more proud of them when I watched this, because you could see that everybody within the changing room was totally invested and totally uh, behind uh, what Mikel Arteta had asked them to do following the sending off, that everybody was was pulling for one another. There wasn't blame going on in the dressing room. There wasn't fingers being pointed. Um, you know, it was, it was, a, there was a togetherness and that's so, so important. Um, Granite Xhaka, um, you know, he took the blame. He took it on the chin uh, initially for the sending off. He says, I take the blame. And, you know, he was right to do that. That That's just how it goes. When you're the last man, you make the challenge. But as I said at the time, and I remember clearly saying this after the game, why the hell was he the last man there? Like, and, and this is what I liked because this is, sorry, this is why Granite Xhaka, I thought, came across really well here because, he didn't have to take the blame. Somebody else might have said, well, why the hell am I a left-sided central midfield player, the last man back, tracking the run of Liverpool's centre-forward on the night? Why the hell is that me? It shouldn't be me. Where was the rest of the team? Where was everybody else? But he took it on the chin, got on with it on the night, and yeah, there was a there was a scene, there was a conversation with him and, and Saka, wasn't there, in the changing room where he said, look, if you guys passed the ball, if you guys were a little bit more efficient in possession, we wouldn't have been caught in that position. Um, you know, and, and, and he was right, I think, to fight his corner there because we did give the ball away cheaply in the build-up and nobody else was anywhere to be seen. But what I liked was that on the night, on the night of the incident, he didn't go, oh, it's your fault, oh, it's your fault. He just said, I take the blame, it's me let the team go back out there and do their job for the second half and get a result. And that's exactly what they did. Um, so, yeah, I, I think Granite Xhaka has come across brilliantly in this doc. I really, really do. Um, 
obviously at the end of January, uh, Maitland-Niles, Kolasinac, Marie and Chambers had all moved out of the door. Um, and I think Arsenal really pushed home the message. I think it was Richard Garlick that said this in the doc, that it was never part of the plan to bring anybody in in January. And that's what I said during that month. I thought that maybe they'd bring plans forward if they could off the back of um, some of the departures. But, you know, I always say this January for me is the window in which you do emergency business. And, uh, and yeah, we weren't willing to veer away from what the plan was. We weren't willing to take a different direction. And I think in the long term, we'll look back on that and say it was the right thing. Um, you know, the Aubameyang transfer eventually went through on deadline day, 10.59, according to the doc. Uh, the paperwork was submitted. I don't know whether that's been over-dramatised for the purpose of the, the spectacle. But anyway, um, and then we move on to episode six, uh, which uh, the kind of first point I, I took note of here was uh, the Ivan Tony. Uh, tweet Mikel Arteta going back through the Twitter sphere to find a tweet from Ivan Tony in which he appeared to be disrespecting Arsenal um, and making sure that um, you know that the players were well aware of that 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 was fresh in their minds going into the game and, and making sure they could go out and and get the result that was needed against Brentford at home. I thought Lacazette came across quite well in episode six. It's just unfortunate he wasn't good enough to do the job that we needed him to do over a long period of time. There was a, a bit where he was uh, being shown some clips by Steve Round, um, sort of clips of Karen Benzema and the way he drops deeper into midfield, gets involved in the build-up, but then still has um, the ability to spin off and get in the box and, and score goals ultimately. And look, we all saw that last season. We all saw that Lacazette could do the dropping off, could help the midfield, could do so many brilliant things. Um, but unfortunately, wasn't always in the position to apply the finishing touch. And that was really, really frustrating. And that's why you've seen such a, a big upgrade in Gabriel Jesus, because he's got the mobility to be able to do both sides of the game. And, um, and because he's got that, additional mobility. He can also go wide as well, something that Lacazette just couldn't do. And again, look, we all know what the deal was with Lacazette, but just to to know that the team, that the club, that the staff were were actively trying to rectify that problem and actively aware of, of what was going on, what gives me encouragement as well. Um, we had a look at the Wolves win at Emirates Stadium, last minute win. Uh, where we turn the game around on its head, you know, big, big, um, big, big game that was. And that was the night where I really started to believe, if I'm being honest, um, that was the night that I really started to believe that, you know, we could do it, that we could finish in the top four. Unfortunately, it wasn't to be in the end, but yeah, um, I, I quite enjoyed watching that victory back in the scenes after that. Um where I did lose a bit of respect for Mikel Arteta, and I won't probably won't say this too often during these documentary reviews, but was when he lit up a wood barbecue. Come on. I'm a charcoal man, Mikel. Wood. What a waste. What a waste. But the, the whole uh, little bit of, you know, with his family at his home, I thought was quite nice. I thought it, it humanised him, um, which you kind of need because often... We look at these footballers, we look at managers, we also we often 
sort of look at them as robots and like people that are immune to criticism. And so we can criticize them all we like and we can say whatever we like about them. It's great that, you know, we get that that view of that side of them because it just reminds you, just kind of pegs you back a little bit. If you are one of these people that goes a little bit over the top in your criticism, that these are normal people with normal families, with normal lives, with kids, depending on them, with a wife, with a partner, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I, I thought that was, um, that was really cool. Um, a couple of interesting bits around Ben White as well. Uh, ben White's family don't like football, never played the game and his dad hates it. We kind of knew that Ben White wasn't football's biggest fan a little while ago when he came out and said that he hardly watches the game. But what a defender he's turning out to be. Um, just goes to show that if you have a talent for something and you're focused, you can reach the maximum level, even if, you know, it, it, you know, there's talent, there's passion and there's effort. If you've got two of them, you can go quite far. I don't want to say that Ben White doesn't have passion for football. He obviously does. You, you don't get to this point without having some passion. But clearly it, that passion has sort of developed as he's been playing the game and as he's grown into the game and as he's found himself performing at the highest level, because it isn't something that is in his blood, in his veins. It isn't something that's come from his family in the way that, you know, maybe many of us have grown up with parents or older cousins or friends or whatever who were into the game and kind of were our gateway into the game. I know for me, my dad was my gateway into football because he's still as mad on Arsenal today as he was 30 years ago. Um, talked a little bit earlier on about Mikel Arteta opening up and that opening up can see you hurt. And I think another example of how he does open up and how he wants to be on the right level with the players from a sort of personal perspective was when he kind of used an example of sort of how he met his wife in a team talk. Now, look, I know that that's kind of neither here nor there, but I think to use those personal examples just builds that bond even further. Um, I thought he did a great job of of keeping spirits up um, after the defeat against Manchester City that we were really hard done by in. Um, I thought he did well at keeping up the spirits after we were beaten by Liverpool in the second leg of the Carabao Cup sort of making sure that the players know that we're not at that level yet and there's still a lot of work to be done, but also not kicking them while they're down, giving them the confidence, taking the positives away from it and hopefully transmitting, as Mikel Arteta would say, that energy and making it into something a lot more positive. Um, great to see Ramsdale as well, a little bit more behind the scenes. I love his reactions. I love the fact that he does get so pissed off when he doesn't keep a clean sheet. I think that's fantastic. Um, Ramsdale also mentioned in the documentary, and it's something that I've mentioned to you guys before as well, and it kind of made me believe this a little bit more having heard it from Aaron Ramsdale as well, is that having a small squad sometimes obviously has its negatives, right? You lose players, you've, you're up shit street, you've got a problem. But it does help in keeping everyone close. It does help in making sure that everybody across the board is bought into whatever it is that you're trying to do. And I'm not saying Mikel Arteta deliberately wants his team to be short when they've got injuries. But what I am saying is that Mikel Arteta is not one that's obsessed with the idea of having a massive squad because people are disengaged, disenfranchised if they're on the peripheries. And actually to have um, 
you know, everybody kind of singing from the same hymn sheet is really, really important. And there will be difficult moments when people are absent, people are missing, of course, as a consequence of that small squad. But the benefit clearly in Mikel Arteta's mind outweighs the negative. A couple of other bits um, before we wrap up on this one. I uh, just wanted to touch on Carlos Cuesta. Um, you know, he, he sort of seems to be a really key cog in the Mikel Arteta machine. He seems to be someone who's got a great relationship with each and every individual player. We kind of got to sit in on a couple of the one-to-ones. There was one with Nuno Tavares earlier in the season, and there was one with Ben White as well, um, where he kind of talked about maybe some of the areas in which those players need to improve, but also make sure that he highlights the strengths to build confidence, to make these people... Um, you know, aware of uh, of why they are at this level. You know, sometimes when you when you're good at something and you get to a certain level, and then all you get is criticism, criticism, criticism. It's hard to kind of remain confident. It's hard to remember why you got to where you got to. Um, you know, I'm not a footballer, but I've I've had that in in walks of life where I've got to a point to a high level of something and thought, yeah, you know what, I'm doing great. And then I've been criticised and criticised and criticised. And you, you kind of start to forget what it is that you're good at and why you're here in the first place. And that actually you deserve to be here. And I think Carlos Cuesta, who, um, you know, he's been linked with a lot of managerial posts over the last few weeks, um, is clearly someone who is on the level of the players. He's younger as well, which helps. Um, and I think that helps him to relate to people. I think he's really, really important to Arsenal. And um, I didn't know an awful lot about him before the Amazon doc. So this has really shed a light on that. And it's great to see the end of episode six shows uh, Mikel Arteta standing in the middle of a changing room with a bloody light bulb in his hand. I don't know what the hell is that? Like, what the hell was that about? Well, we'll find out, of course, in the last three episodes, which obviously drop tomorrow uh, on Amazon Prime uh, for those of you that are wanting to watch. And of course, we'll give it a few days again so that people can watch it so that we're not delivering any spoilers and then we'll break down. Uh, those episodes as well look out for a familiar face as well in uh, in the final episode of the amazon doc just for a few seconds um nice one guys thank you so so much for tuning in again apologies for the lack of a podcast yesterday it was my birthday so i decided to uh try and chill out a little bit never works out like that but anyway uh we'll be back of course uh tomorrow beginning our build-up uh, i beg your pardon the last two episodes not the last three is it last two not three I can't remember. Anyway, um, we're going to begin our build up to the game against Bournemouth at the weekend. Tomorrow we'll be rounding up all the latest Arsenal news as well. So make sure you're subscribed to the YouTube channel. Make sure you leave a like on the video. And also, if you're listening uh, to the podcast, please do leave us a review. But before I go, before I go, um, Football Prizes are at it again with another fantastic Arsenal related prize. They have been on fire lately and the link to this one is in the description um if you are interested let me share the screen uh, for you here so uh, if you want to get your hands on a gilberto silver and patrick vieira signed and dual framed arsenal montage display plus the opportunity to win one of 10 instant win prizes, which include a Dennis Bergkamp signed and custom framed Arsenal shirt, a Freddie Jumberg signed Arsenal montage, Nelson Wenger signed Arsenal montage, the 2022-23 away shirt, Paul Merson signed Arsenal shirt, £10 of football prizes site credit, or 
any of the other vouchers for uh, for five pounds football size uh, football prizes site credit, then you can link uh, click the link in the description. There's 199 tickets available for this one, but 132 of them have already gone. So if you're interested, get in there quickly. The link is in the description. Tickets are four pounds ninety five. What a midfield that was, eh? Gilberto and Patrick Vieira. If you're interested, click the link in the description, support football prizes, and uh, give yourself a chance of winning a grand prize. We'll be back very, very soon with more. Until next time, take care of yourselves. Goodbye. I'm Martin Tyler, and you're listening to Harry Simeon.